This is the Jason Kavnis Experience, hosted by Jason Kavnis. Join Jason as he talks to small business owners and startup founders and other interesting people as we gain great insights about business, people, leadership, HR, and how each guest strives to be great every day. Hello, and welcome to Jason Kavnis Experience. I'm your host, Jason Kavnis. Our guest today is Laura Malcolm. Laura, you ready to be great today? I sure am. Laura Malcolm is the founder CEO of Given Kind, a modern platform for coordinating support through major life events. After experiencing the tragic loss of her first child, Laura took a 10 years of product man- management experience and set out to create an easier way for friends, families, and communities to, t- to come together when it's needed most. In 2016, Given Kind was launched, combining a care calendar, wish list, crowdfunding, and updates to one aggregated support tool. Laura bootstrapped GivenKind for three years, taking her family across the world twice to save money and work with GivenKind's offshore development team, and has since raised $3.8 million from top investors in Seattle. Laura, thanks for being today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Jason. So, Laura, uh, first thing, um, let's talk about product management. Like, what is it? Is it product management? product development? Is it all the same thing? And how does that work? Yeah, it's so interesting. I didn't expect that I would um, go into product management. My degree is in psychology. And people have told me, like, well, what does this psychology degree have to do with being a product manager in tech? And the answer is everything, right? When you are um, pro- the product manager, you are thinking about um, what makes, uh, ha- how people interact with your product, what makes them compelled to move through it, what drives that experience, right? And in the role as product management, you also become that central hub of coordinating engineering and design. And I think that it, um, I, I think that um, CEOs with product management backgrounds, I'd be interested to know the statistics. I think that they, you know, it is a, a you know, mini CEO version, I think, of your own um, experience or feature or product within a larger suite of products. And so, how does that happen with psychology to product management? Were you already interested in tech, even you were already taking psychology, psychology classes, or just always a matter of man? I got a psychology, a psychology degree. It's kind of a BS degree. You, you know, I'm, I'm having trouble finding a job. Let me like do something else. So it was an interesting transition. I didn't, I didn't expect to move into tech. My um, my father had had a long career. Um, on tugboats and then he had a transition later in his life into tech he had always you know sort of geeked out on computers and we had computers when i was young um he programmed handheld computers out on the boats and um and then he made a transition in his 30s into first being an entrepreneur and then um in tech and then really developing this long career in tech and um when he passed away um when he was 50 i was in my early 20s um, I had had my degree and I was um, working as a nanny. I had a long past life as a sort of high-end celebrity nanny. But that wasn't, you know, going to be forever. And um, and after he died, I realized that I needed to make a change. And I found a uh, job listing for a content manager at a little startup in Santa Monica, where I was living. Um, I'm from here, but was living in California. And I just wrote, um, I wrote to them and I said, I'm, I believe in this company you're doing. It was this eco shopping website and I'd love to learn. And I'm, you know, I've been passionate about technology. And I wrote this, like, here are all the things that I think um, could be improved in your website. And I had no experience or business doing that. 
And um, I uh, got that job and I never looked back. I just went all the way up from product manager to director of product or um, a role in project management and sort of touching all those things um, until we decided to start giving kind. Yeah, off subject, I have a cousin who lives in Burbank. I've been like two or three times. I just love Santa Monica Pier. The, the vibe, the people, it's just, it's just such a great environment there. The beach is, that part of LA is amazing. I mean, LA gets a lot of flack as it should, especially from us here in the Northwest. Um, but I lived by the beach for all of my time in LA and that was definitely a more Northwest vibe. Yeah. It allowed me to do things like, you know, ride my bike to work every day. I didn't have a car for many years. I just rode my bike everywhere and it was pretty nice. And, you know, I was not, I, I had enough vitamin D, which <laughs> we just don't hear. <laughs> No, I mean, like, I think I saw in the news where, like, we've had five hours over 70 degrees. And it was, it was crazy. It said, we well, used to have 150 hours. It's not like 150 hours. That's not even a week, you know? No, so, no, no. Yeah, if you're going to live for a few days, you actually you need to be on vitamin D or pills or something, right? Yeah. Well, we're going to get it this weekend, um, yeah. the heat, and yeah. everyone's going to complain. I know, yeah. So, so back to tech. So you, you, you were a female tech back in the day, so to speak, and it was always talking about diversity in tech, females have a hard time. From your point of view, has it been getting better or is it still pretty bad? Oh man, well, you know, now I look at it a lot more um, on the founder lens. So are women still underrepresented in tech? Absolutely. Um, and that certainly, you know, I think that any other woman in tech will tell you that we're very often used to being the only one in the room, the only one um, at the table. And, um, I think there's disproportionate roles that women have or tend to go up the ladder in, right? Marketing, more soft skills, less engineers. We know that we need more more women in tech and that there's, um, I don't know if the, you know, what the data says about how more of a focus on STEM in schools and those sorts of pipelines are working out. We know that there's incredible organizations that are doing work to get more young women interested in um engineering. Um, certainly we know that female founders are disproportionate and get severely disproportionate amounts of funding, of course, even being more than some other um, underrepresented groups of founders. But no, it's it's still skewed. I don't know whether that is getting better or worse. So I think the problem starts here, and you agree or disagree. Uh, and I think, hopefully, I get these numbers correct as close as I can. I read somewhere where, like, in elementary school, like 85, 90% of females or little girls are like love STEM, engineering, science, mm -hmm. but it drops down like maybe 10, 50% of high school. So, like, how do we stop that drop? Is like, is it, I'm guessing it's, it has to be societal pressures, you know, you don't, you shouldn't do that and do this, you know. But it's just, that's just a crazy drop from like third, fourth grade, like high school. Like, that's just in, insane, I think. It is. And I think it's exposure to, I mean, I think, as I said, there's community organizations that I think are doing more work on the local levels that I hope will impact that. Um, I think role models is a really important part of that, right? They need to see other women in STEM and being represented and being teachers at their schools. And um, I mean, and now, of course, we are given the last three years and everything that's gone on, and we know that women are leaving the workforce in droves and they're leaving teaching because teaching sucks right now. And um, and so I worry that we're losing a whole um, group of women leaders that could be inspiring to those next generations. And I mean, we're just worried about the kids. 
Yeah, I think another challenge too. We always talk about demographic. We don't talk enough about the urban versus the rural, right? Because if you're in Seattle, you have a different advantage if you want to take care of versus you live in I don't know some random town in the middle of Nebraska, right? Oh, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. We were. I was. Um, I spoke on an, at a, uh, the uh, Goodwill of Western Washington Centennial event. And um, there was an incredible panelist there who's doing a bunch of tech um, tech upskilling for kids in parts of Tacoma, you know, South Sound, where we both are. And uh, he was talking about um, internet access, right, connectivity, and how we are missing this fact that there is a fundamental, we have pushed everybody onto needing to be connected, right? Kids who had to do remote school had to go home, but in many parts of the country, right, they didn't have, there's no internet access. So you have kids sitting outside um, McDonald's or the library trying to get connected. So the kids, job seekers, people who need to fill out forms for anything, right, when we've put everything online. And so absolutely, is there a regional um, advantage or disadvantage in the ability to come up in STEM? 100%. I don't know how some kid in rural Nebraska is um, not only not exposed to it, but there's nowhere for them to go and develop those skills. I mean, this is a bad example, maybe, but it's almost better, like, instead of, like, living in, like, you know, a random small town in Nebraska, go, you know, go and be homeless for a little bit in, like, a big city so you have internet access, right, and then come up like that, you know? I mean, I, I, wouldn't, that wild? Su- I wouldn't suggest no one to do that, but it's, like, almost like, what do you do, right? Yeah, it's wild. So, um... As far as like now, there's a lot of junior developers out there. It's hard for them to find jobs, right? Because like most most job positions say, you know, two, three years experience. And I'll push back to them always is, hey, like they should do some kind of internship or something, right? Mm-hmm. But it's hard for them to find jobs, right? How, what advice do you have a junior developer trying to get a job? Oh, well, I mean, I know that there's there's great programs. I mean, here locally, right? Epicotus is one um, that puts um, students through internships. Um, it's so... It's, it's, it's hard and unfair because so much of this industry is gated, right? It's gated based on who you know and what paths you can wiggle up to get access to. And let's even just talk about internships, right? What a privileged thing because people offer unpaid internships. Well, you want to know who can take an unpaid internship? Rich kids. Yeah. <laughs> Other people can't take an internship. And so it's... it's um, it's it's difficult. I don't. Uh, I wish I had good advice for um, junior developers finding jobs. Uh, it, it seems. It's. I mean. It's similar to the housing. It's similar to the housing <laughs> crisis, right? Where we're sort of like, well, we have hundreds of thousands of jobs and hundreds of thousands of young developers but who don't some, have some jobs. Somehow they're not matching up, you know. And yet somehow we cannot make the connections. Who I feel really terrible for right now are um, the junior devs who you know are being impacted in and sort of entry level and experience roles. Let's just talk about the tech industry and the sort of crash that's happening right now. You know, following these kids who um, got their job offers rescinded, their first job <sighs> offer out of college, their visa sponsorship. It's like, like so horrible. It's, it's a be, disaster. It's beyond horrible. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it's like amazing. Like someone posted on a, I'm on TikTok, like some partners did a thing on TikTok. When you when you're, you care more about your Super Bowl ad than you know paying your employees, right? Hashtag Coinbase, you know. Yeah. But they're not the only company, right? So. Well, and they've been, you know, and I'm I'm you know in this camp of like, um, you know, I started my first um, tech job in uh, 2009. So right in the first right, you know, the first crash, sort of coming out of it. 
everybody who has entered the market since then has been thinking about, you know, free perks and everything in the tech world. So you have these kids who've been watching this for 10 years, right? All of high school and college has been watching like, like, it's it's my turn now. You're going to, exactly, you're going to go into tech and you're going to get all these perks and you're going to go make $300,000 a year. And now it's, you know, it's uncomfortable here for a while. Yeah, it's it's definitely a challenge, right? It's just, I I don't know, it's craziness. So, Product market, product management. Um, that's like that's a tech job. You don't have to. You have to. Mm-hmm. You really don't. So product manager, that's the same as like quality assurance. Or is like you're like overseeing devs. Like what's your what's that day to day? Yeah, it's more. You know, you can be. I think there's a spectrum of technical and non-technical product managers. I would call myself a pretty non-technical product manager. Um, but to be, you still have to speak some level of mm-hmm. tech. Um, but there was a lot of product managers who have um, engineering backgrounds, right? They know how to code. So I think it depends on the product that you're working on. If you're working on a highly technical product, then you are going to need to be more technical. But, you know, the process in product management, you know, d- depending on, you know, I'm make some gross generalizations here, right, is that you are that hub in the middle of the wheel and you are taking a everything from a, you know, a feature, a website, um, a new app, and basically, um, you know, it's it's not dissimilar from a project manager, but your job isn't just sort of pushing things so around two, and keeping things on track. They are two different okay. things. Um, but it's, you know, how is this going to make money? What is it going to be? It is, it's almost everything that you're thinking about as a founder, right? A product manager is doing um, on, a, on a smaller scale because they're responsible for making sure that people can use the product um, but you're, you know, but you don't have to worry about how customers are going to come to it. It's more like once the customers are here, if you're working with marketing, um, how am I going to make sure that the users have the best experience? How am I analyzing, you know, each step that they take? Um, you know, you're working with a, you know, a designer. You could say, hey, I want to test this button being orange or being blue. And then, you know, your designer might be coming back with here's the shades of blue that you can use. Example. So that's a great point. Talk about the points of having a, like a at least a decent designer. You know, so many people don't realize how important that is, right? Well, I'm a little biased. My husband is Given Kind's designer, um, and again, designer is probably shortchanging. But he left, you know, um, 20 years doing ads for all of the big companies, um, and then wanted to leave um, sort of advertising to work on our startup. And help people do good things instead of, you know, just spend more time on their iPhones. Um, design is incredibly important. It, it instills confidence. I think that if you go to a website and you have the same company with the same value prop and the same pricing and one of their sites is designed well and one is not, right, you're going to trust the one that's designed well. Yeah, it's not even close either. No, we are, we're captured by design and thoughtful design and it's so interesting when you um, really spend time in a designer's process a good designer should be thinking through um, the feelings that different things evoke right why do we use this color why do we use this font what does it mean and it's those little touches that I think a good designer but now Design has really expanded, right? And so it's important when you are thinking about getting design for your 
company or your website or your brand, right? There's those skills have evolved so that we now know that there are specific product designers and they're really, um, you know, focused on user experience and there's visual designers and they're thinking about your brand and your colors and your marketing campaigns. And those can be different. Those can be different skill sets. It's something that I think we're seeing sort of evolving over time. I remember when I first like doing my startup and I had a designer working with me and they're like, I'm like, I, want, I like the color blue. Well, what number blue? What do you mean? What number blue? <laughs> yeah, the, R, the RBG colors. This, this number, this number. Like, what are you talking about? Yeah, this like blew my mind, right? Yeah. Like, what in the world is going mm-hmm. on here, right? I just want blue. Is this blue? That blue? This blue? This? You know, psychological stuff. Yeah. So, oh my goodness. You didn't know. No, it's craziness. Um, are you still involved with Female Founders Alliance? I am. I'm going to an event tonight. It is no longer. It is. Um, has evolved from the Female Founders Alliance. So it's an incredible organization that was um, founded by Leslie Feinzag five years ago, let's call it. Um, it started out as a Facebook group for um, for female founders and she had 100 founders in there to begin with and really was a community um, that had great events and um, fireside chats and, and you know a Facebook group where people could talk resource with other founders, talk to other founders, other women and non-binary founders. Um, and it's been just amazing to see what she has done over the last five years. It turned into um, raising a $10 million fund. Um, so now, you know, Given Kind is proud to be one of their portfolio companies alongside some other really incredible um, female founders and co-founders. And um, they're just a, a really powerful part of this part of this community. So it's not like they're, they're evolving. What's the purpose of like, what's the success metric for Female Founders Alliance? Yeah, to increase the um, amount of funding that goes to female founders, <laughs> which is um, unfortunately decreasing. Now, I don't think, I think there's a lot of people who are working on this. So, you know, it, this is going to be a needle that's going to take some time to move. But when, um, when Leslie started um, the alliance, I believe the number was 2.9%. I think that recently it's been something like 2.3% yeah. of venture capital dollars go to female-founded companies. Um, now, some people want to debate, like, okay, well, there's a higher percentage that go to mixed-gender teams, right? So we can't say that female founders get no funding because, well, 15% of funding goes to mixed-gender teams. Well, that's, that's BS, right? There is... Um, uh, um, uh, statistic. I'm trying to think of. Um, I'm blanking on the person's name who just told me this recently. It's going to come to me. Uh, that more guys named Dave. It was Dave Parker. So it was Dave Parker who told me, who's a fixture here in the Seattle startup scene, that more guys named Dave get venture capital funding than female founders. That's just crazy. Mm-hmm. Wow. Is is there other chapters of Female Founders Alliance, or Seattle's the only place? It's a national organization. Okay, so but it started mm-hmm. here. Seattle's grew, but it started here in Seattle. Yeah, and, and, and has grown. And didn't y'all do, or maybe you still do, like the F bomb pitch competition or something like that? So that's another group. So that's uh, so that's Megan McNally's group is okay. the F bomb Breakfast Club, which okay. was another amazing group. I believe that has um, sunsetted. Nobody hold mm-hmm. me to that. Um, uh, post pandemic, um, but that was an awesome group of of Seattle business leaders that did meet here in Pioneer Square at the crack of dawn. Um, so this event going on tonight. Can you talk more about it in case anyone's listening and wants to go to it? Yeah, and I don't actually know if there's tickets left available, but there is a um, Graham and Walker reconnect happening at the um, at the uh, Amazon Spheres. 
Okay. Um, but there's been some some really amazing other uh, startup events that um, have been happening and sort of starting back up here here in Seattle. Um, I can send you some notes. Marcelo Cabucci has been doing one that I um, went to uh, recently. There's um, John Steinberg is doing founder and investor dinners. Like it's been fun to see the events starting to come back online. I'm also a big fan of Founders Live. Did you ever go to the Founders Live? Yeah, I was like one of the first ones to go there. Yeah. Yeah. So those were yeah we pitched in I think 2019 in the basement of Galvanize around the mm -hmm. corner and they've moved around a bunch since yeah. then. But it's been nice to see those events come back online. In person. What's your take on this? Like Seattle, there's so much startups have, go, startups have gone on, like this Founders Live, New Tech Tacoma, you know, on and on and on. But sometimes, like, they really don't collaborate, right? It's like they're like, oh, like kind of like siloed, right? Like you do Founders Live, you see the great pitches, you go somewhere else. Hey, I just saw a great pitch from this company. I've never heard of them before, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, how is it like, I don't know, what do you think about that? Oh, it's. Or am I off base? No, you're not off base. And I don't know if it just has to do with our, you know, Seattle sort of known for the Seattle freeze. And is it, are we not that collaborative? I don't know. Maybe that's one of the things that I love so much about the Female Founders Alliance and this community of like, we know a lot of the female founders in Seattle, thanks to a tight community like that. And I don't know why um, Seattle startup community is, um, can be disjointed. I don't know if it's the same in the Bay. I mean, there's once upon a time, you know, early stage founders felt like they needed to go to the Bay. They needed to to be there in um, meeting other founders. And I know that some of those communities are popping up elsewhere. I don't know if it's the um, type of startup community that we have or just the fact that we don't actually like to um, go out and meet people and do things unless we have to. I don't know. So here's a pet peeve of mine. It drives me crazy. Like talking about diversity and funding and stuff like that. You see all the time where like a VC would say, hey, you know, I, I need to increase my diversity, my funding, blase, blase, blase. However, comma, I only take, you know, I only meet with people I get an introduction from, from somebody already in my network, which is probably a white person or like whatever demographic. Right? That's always like, like, do you, are you hearing what you're saying? Right? Like, that makes no sense to me. No, it doesn't. And it's, it's a part of the, it's a part of the pipeline problem for sure. I will say that for example, Graham and Walker, the Female Founders Alliance Fund, um, takes um, has a pitch. They they have a number of portfolio companies that have applied through a form on their website. There's an incredible fund um, called Overlooked Ventures in Ohio. They do not will not accept warm yeah, intros. I've, I've heard of them. Yeah, yeah. People, people, a lot of people mention them. They're really great, and um, uh, and and but they don't take warm intros just for that reason. And it's, it is frustrating to still see and come across investors um, that are really clear about the, you know, the impact they want to have, just like you said, and, and, you know, you fit their thesis and you fit all these things. And then, you know, it's like, well, you have to find, like, find, I, I, a, find a yeah, way to yeah, me. Yeah, I don't know you. Yeah. Like, yeah. And then people are having good conversations about the fact that we're First of all, that that system is wrong, right? Because you're missing out on an incredible amount of talented founders and potential startups that just haven't, you know, cracked their way into these paths. Um, it, well, I lost my train of thought for that. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> so what's your, what's your take on the tech scene here in Seattle, tech startup scene in Seattle? I mean, I don't think we're going to be like the Bay Area, but we're like one of the top players, right? Of course, there's us, Austin, Boston, different places. Like, I joke all the time, like, you know, I'm from Texas, you know, and Seattle's home now. And and what I'm doing is like, the best place to be at, right? But then again, like you said, it's going to be kind of disjointed, right? What's your take on the tech startup scene here? 
So it's interesting because I, I, you know, Seattle is not a, it's not a consumer venture city. So, you know, we have very few players who invest in consumer tech. Um, so it's very B2B, first of all. Um, and a lot of founders are coming out of Microsoft and Amazon. And, and so I think that we have a lot of people with a lot of connections and these, um, you know, strong backgrounds um, who are uh, founding companies. But we also don't have a ton of very early stage funders anymore. Um, and it feels like something that has shifted a bit, even just since we um, since we raised our first round for Given Kind in 2019. Like there's not, there's a couple of angel groups, um, but as far as I know, Graham and Walker may be one of the only pre-seed funds. Um, there's a few, Kirby Winfield has Ascend, and um, there's a couple others that invest in pre-seed, but not these like really strong pre-seed thesis um, funds here in Seattle. Um, Front Row Partners is one, Minda and Yoko. Um, but it's not the thriving pre-seed. It's much more sort of later stage B2B SaaS is what Seattle is really good at funding. And so it's sad to hear founders say um, that, you know, they feel like they need to leave Seattle to go to the Bay to, to get investors interested. I wish that we had a vibrant, thriving um, early stage, very early stage startup scene. I mean, we have students coming out of UW and UW Tacoma and, um, you know, great um, computer science and engineering degrees. It, it, I think it would behoove us to invest more in the earliest stages here. Uh, I'm probably making this up, but I think like I read somewhere here where like for every 100 VC firms of Bayer, there's only, only like one here or something like that. Or like, like I mean, it's, just, it's not even close. It's not big. We're not a leader. I mean, we have a couple of, of really amazing um, funds and, and investors in town, um, but we definitely are um, are missing out on some very early stage So you want up a good potential. point. Like, I know, like, I've heard, like, investors say, you know, like, a lot of startups firms start get funding in Seattle, and they get turned down. And investors say, well, we invest in, in, in investable startups, right? Then these same startups, I know like four time ahead, like to Austin, Boston, and other places and got money like almost instantly, right? And then when the Seattle investors found out, then they want to jump in the bandwagon, right? So almost like, almost like, almost like, you know, like you have to be a, a series A to get PC funding here. Or it's almost like they have like, you know, almost like a banker's mentality, right? Like there's no risk at all, right? Yeah, and I, I don't know um, if that's, the experience, right? Again, if we've created some really big, um, think about the companies that Seattle has grown up, right? Um, and so I do a lot of investors also have those backgrounds, right? Coming out from years at Microsoft or Amazon. I mean, the, the fact is, is that a, you know, a fund has a fiduciary responsibility to be investing in companies that they think are fund returners. Um, Plus so, it's all just a guessing game anyway, right? It is, yeah. I mean, maybe just roll the dice instead. Who knows? Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons um, that pattern matching happens, which, of course, is yeah. just perpetuating the lack of diversity in venture-backed founders. And, you know, there's some thinking that this crunch right now um, for funding, it, I mean, it is really just going to impact. It's going to impact the underrepresented founders absolutely the most. Because where VCs could sort of step out of, pattern matching 
based on some things. You know, they could... It, it, unfortunately, I think that it feels more risky, right, when we don't pattern match. And I think that people are... Investors are probably hedging their bets a lot right now. And so this is something that I understand. And again, I don't understand, right? You, an investor, like, you know, it's not like they're more like you investing in someone who's like failed, right? Like Jason Cavins had a startup career and they invested five million, but he lost the five million. He learned five million dollars worth of lesson. Let me invest in, right? To me, that's make logical sense. But then I'll say no to someone who like has even a better idea and more traction. But oh, no, he hasn't done this before. You know, it's like I never understood that philosophy. I do in a way, and I, in a way I don't. You know. Yeah, I think it's that. I think it's that experience. So I'll make a um, a non tech analogy. Um, I'm on my second marriage, and the failure of my first marriage made me such a better partner for my second marriage. First one failed. I am a better person, a better spouse. I. You know, I learned so many things. And I think that's a part of what the founder journey is, yeah. right? No matter how that first one ends up, you don't, unless you were really missed the boat, right? You don't walk away not having learned anything. If you spend $5 million, hopefully over an extended period of time, you have learned so many lessons along the way that I think that those investors probably... They either watched you on that journey. Yeah, they're probably good right? friends with the, with the first investor team, something like that. Yeah. Uh, um, you know who Jason Calcanis is, this angel investor? So I, I, I listen to podcasts once in a while. He was telling a story about how he invested like $3 million in a, like this startup. And they, of course, they went under and lost some money. And he said the founder said, I to tell him, hey, we're going under. We, you know, we lost $3 million, but we learned so much. He was like, are you effing kidding me? I didn't give you money to like learn lessons. I learned like to, to succeed, right? So I just thought it was a funny story. I have feelings about that guy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I like him. I mean, I know a lot. He loves a lot. Loves a lot of people wrong. He just, he's definitely like um, what's the word I'm looking for? An acquired taste. Uh huh. taste. I know people who like like him or like like they hate him for whatever reason. Um. So. So you're a non tech founder. How much of the challenge has that been? Um. So you had some interesting, interesting workarounds, which is like very interesting. What you've done, yeah. So it was, a, it's a challenge in that you know the best way to bootstrap or self-fund a company is to sit down behind a computer and code it yourself. You know, the thing that costs the most money in starting a technology platform is the code. I mean, for me, I think all the time, man. Maybe going back in time, just learn to code, right? Maybe take a year off, learn how to code, right? But then again, then you wouldn't make all the progress you did, blah blah. blah. Like it's just like it's that chicken egg thing, right? Yeah, but like, yeah. Tech people definitely have advantage. Like, there's no doubt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so they, you know, we, um, I, my background in speaking to developers and working with developers for for the decade that I did before so, so we started. So you know language, you know different things. Yeah, just just enough to be dangerous, right? Yeah. Just enough to know what I was asking for. That was a huge advantage. Um, but needing to pay for every line of code written for a given kind um that i mean i think that's probably that's probably the only real disadvantage but there's two things you need to do with a startup right one is build it and two is get people to use it so i uh, you know you have to have that part you can't just put yeah, three developers has, in a room everything and has, everything has to line yeah, up so right it's you know it's an important role um that's why a lot of companies start with a you know a developer and a non-developer as co-founders yeah so Back to given kind, how long has it, has it been in business? Six years. Six years. Does it seem like six years or does it seem like, like time just flew by? Oh, it's both every single day. 
Like, I don't know where six years went. And also, I can't really remember a time that we weren't working on it. Yeah. Talk about So you bootstrapped the first three years. Talk about bootstrapping. How tough that can be. Excruciating. <laughs> um, no, you know, we made it work. It, so my, my husband and I, um, as I said, we were living in L.A. And we both had two really good jobs. And um, we had an 18-month-old baby. And we decided um, we're going to do it. It's time to build Given Kind. We're tired of, um, you know, working on other people's, well, me startups and him, you know, not a startup. Um, and... Sorry, we asked the question one more time. Oh, about bootstrapping. Oh, yes. <laughs> and so we were trying to figure out how we were going to build it. And we started looking at dev shops in L.A. and realizing that there was no way we were going to be able to afford. Yeah, probably want like $10,000 an hour. Some oh, my God, so much. You know, it was going to be a lot of money to build. And so we decided that we would um, sell our house in L.A. that we had just bought and that we would hire an offshore dev team and um, but the way that we would save money is that we would actually pack up our family and go to Thailand to work alongside them. So how do that save money if you're moving there? Like you have to pay for the cost to move everything there or just a matter of like, you know, saving time, being right there with them versus the cross country. Well, we just took bags. So we moved there, but for three months oh, okay. just, so just to build the first version of the product. So you got like an Airbnb or something living in something like that or. Yep. Yep. So we did short term. Uh, we actually moved into a like a local condo. Um, we showed up, stayed at a hotel, I think stayed at an Airbnb and then found housing. Like well, you have to have a certain to that whole adventure. You have to have a certain level of comfort with like not having all the plans figured out. So we're like, OK, well, we'll go there and we'll figure it out. Um, that's sort of our life motto. Like we'll figure it out. And so we stayed for three months and had sort of thought. I'm going to build this company and um, and then we'll get some users and then we'll raise some money and we'll be off to the races. And, you know, I think that's what a lot of founders think. And instead we came back and found out that it's not so simple as just building it and raising money, um, especially not if you're, you know, have all these other check marks against you, female founder, first time founder, you know, all of those things. Um, and so then we spent the next two years really slow growing. So just enough users, just enough more users every month to keep going, not making any money. Um, my husband was was back to doing contracts at um, other companies to pay the bills. And then we had another kid and um, it was time to put that kid in daycare. And we really realized that our um, development cost was the equivalent of both kids in daycare. And so we had to choose, we couldn't afford to do both. But man, we were so close and we just had, you know, we didn't feel like Given Kind is what we wanted it to be. And we really needed to get out this next version of it. And so we made a choice that we would cut our expenses again by packing up two kids and going back to Thailand. And um, and again, it's just it's so cheap. Yeah. <laughs> like we just, you know, for the cost of our rent in Tacoma, we were in Thailand with housing and daycare and a nanny and like all the things that we could do um, to be supportive also to be to be working. And um, and so we went back and and uh, came out with the next version of Given Kind, this next release and immediately started growing the sort of, you know, double digit monthly growth that you need to have to be um, venture backable. And that's what, and I don't know if we want to get into that later, but like when we talk about venture, I've learned so much about what it means to be, you know, 
to fit the box, to be venture backable. And one of them is that compound growth every month. And so we had to hit that. And that's something that I think that founders don't understand enough or take enough. You know, like we really, if you're growing 5% every month, it's very difficult it's to not get good an enough. investor. Yeah. It's not good enough. You have to be growing big numbers, 20%, 30%. And when, you, when you're starting out, you're, you know, the N is small. You should be able to grow 50% every month. You know, it's only... Those 10 to 15% numbers are okay when you're huge, but not when you're early. So we hit the growth that we needed. We were getting a hockey stick. Um, and at this point, we're starting to get enough users that I needed to be, you know, we didn't have any customer. I was customer support. Thailand is 14 hours away. So I didn't feel like I could be offline every day, but we still didn't have any money. So, um, so I moved my family to Mexico to the top of the Yucatan. Um, because then we could be on U.S. time zones. We could still save money. And I um, got our first two investor checks from there and said, okay, we can go home. And we came home. And then um, we ended up raising our rounds uh, about four months later. That's a great story. I mean, there's no doubt you're all in, right? Like, there's no no investor in doubt that you're, like, you're all in on this. So when you, when you told the dev team, hey, we're going to move to Thailand, we're like, uh, why are you coming? Or like, why are you coming here? Or they support like no one's ever been here before. What what are you trying to do? I think they were excited probably to work. Um, I like to think to be you know actually. I'm very pro remote team, but when you were building just the beginnings of that, yeah. like just nothing like being shoulder to shoulder, being on the same time zone. Um, and half of the development team that started with us six years ago is still with us today. Nice. And what part of Thailand were you in? In Chiang Mai. So uh, my wife's cousin, she has a cousin lives in in, in, in uh, Thailand. So in his army career, we, we were the two times, one oh seven for two weeks and one oh eight for two weeks. They live in a town called Prestonbury, like the hours east of Bangkok. Mm-hmm. It is a great experience, right? And like I said, it's so cheap. Like he had us like a driver for like ten dollars a day. It's like it was it was, so, it was so much fun over there. Thailand is am- is amazing. Yeah. I I can't wait to get back. But um, you know, they call it the land of smiles yeah. for a reason. Yeah. Like it's just lovely. It's very nice. And so you're still outsourcing your tech through this development team? Yeah, we are. Yep. So we have three developers in Thailand and one in Poland. Pretty much everybody is expat. Only one of the developers in Thailand is Thai. We have a Polish developer living in Thailand and a Dutch developer living in Thailand and a Brazilian developer living in Poland. So we're a very international team. So I've heard some people say, you know, if you want to get VC money, you have to have a tech team internally. But obviously you didn't do it that way. No, and we didn't get any pushback at all on having a remote Mm -hmm. team. I mean, I think that if you show the product progress, if you show that, um, you know, the the code is good. I think that the difference is that this wasn't like, this isn't like a big shop. Mm -hmm. You know, we weren't, um, there are some big development um, factories for lack of a better word, right? Around, you probably get message from them on all LinkedIn the t- all day all long, all day right? Long. Yep, to help you with your development resources. This was a little different because this is our team, right? Mm. They're on our slide. Like they are, they're full time with us. Um, so yes, we are still working through, um, you know, we pay a, a firm, mm. I guess, but the firm is our team. Okay. So we have to the company. So you're the CEO of the company, right? And what's your husband's title, like role? He's the head of design. So we actually ended up bringing on our lead developer. Um, it came on as co-founder about a year after we started. And 
part of that was because we were starting to talk to um, investors here and we got pushed back on, on my husband was listed as co-founder and he has no interest in being the co-founder. Mm-hmm. He's a behind the scenes guy through and through. He was never going to come stand, you know, at a investor pitch mm-hmm. with me. So there was no reason for him to be a co-founder. Um, and so we brought on our uh, head of engineering um, into a co-founding role. So you, you kind of answered the, my next question. The next question was, like when you when you start on the team, you know, you and your husband, of course, you you, you had to know that you're going to have a hard time raising as a female CEO. Was there any talk and discussion? Hey, I know in reality I'm the CEO, but hey, husband, you take the title so we can get easier funding. No, not okay. in our no, okay. not in our case. Again, there was just no, you know, I am the face for lack of a better mm. term. And it's so funny because I think that there's people who genuinely believe that in some ways that there's some sort of like affirmative action for founders, right? They're like, oh, you're <laughs> gonna be at a you're gonna be at a advantage because you're a female founder. And you stand out. And that's that's bullshit, right? We know that that's not that that's not the case. Talk about the points of having your your, your like your husband, close family, close friends like supporting you. Cause I see so many founders like they just have to give up because like the spouse is supporting really. I mean, they say okay. I know a lot of founders would quit because the, the spouse says they support them, but they really don't, right? They yeah. make night comments, you know. Have you started a company yet? Are you successful? Are they send like job postings and stuff? You know, yeah. they talk about the importance of that. Well, it's you know our situation is so unique that he's in it with us, mm-hmm. and I mean I can't even I, I cannot overstate the amount of support that is um, required to do this and to have two little kids at home. Um, I can't imagine, I cannot imagine what it would be like to um, A, not have a partner who was supportive, family that was supportive. Um, But two, we somehow are able to be together 23 hours a day and work together and um, do great. I think it's a huge advantage. So you bought your closer, you think? Oh, absolutely. Well. There have been many things that have brought us closer. You know, Given Kind started because we lost a child. Mm. And that, going through the most traumatic event, splits people up. Huge, huge divorce rates after the loss of a child. Or brings people closer together. And the fact that we've been able to um, build this company and work day in and day out together has absolutely brought us closer together. We have, we have perspective, right? We know the little things that don't matter. We know the things that do matter. We've got a great rhythm. And like I said, I think it's a huge advantage. I was, we have a routine where um, on Wednesday nights, there's a design and tech call that I only semi need to be listening to and chiming in on, but it's not my meeting. And so like he takes it from the standing desk in our bedroom and I sit behind and fold laundry. And it's just the right amount for me to be engaged, but not like hovering. Um, and it's those little things, right? That's not happening in very many other team meeting dynamics. Talk about this. Uh, I made a mistake a lot in the past. I think a lot of founders, like they'll make a mistake of spending too much money, right? For example, well, I don't really need this plat- this marketing platform, but man, it's like 80% off for a year. Let me pay for it up front. And six months go by, oh crap, I never used it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I have a lot of those reflections often. When you've been self-funding or bootstrapping for a long time, I mean, okay, let's let's use the analogy, right, of people who win the lottery and the ways that that money goes. Very fast. Very fast. Like, what, 98% were, like, back in the same situation? Yep. Yeah. And it's not, 
Right. We don't. I think that founders, the way that founders earn money is not right. We're obviously not like going and buying a Ferrari, but there is an idea. And I just saw somebody comment on on LinkedIn about a company that just raised a ton of money in Australia, 15 minute um, uh, grocery delivery, you know, and then they're doing layoffs. They're shutting down right away. No, they're doing layoffs. They're shutting warehouses. They're not shutting down. It was like, how on earth did they spend so much money so fast? And the comment was like, founders seem to think that you can, you will grow in direct proportion to the amount of money that you spend. But the answer is, or what I have learned, my experience is that um, until you know what is going to make you grow, you cannot spray and pray on all of these tactics so hindsight, yes, we've bought SaaS tools that we didn't fully utilize. Um, we've um, invested in a, you know, a campaign or a consultant or a channel that, um, that didn't have the ROI. I think that founders in for the next two to three years, one of the good things, I guess, about the sort of reckoning is that I think there's going to be a lot more focus. If everybody's saying you have to get cash flow positive, right? You have to think about everything that you do. What is the impact on my business going to be? What is the return of investment on this investment that I'm making? Because every time you spend money, you are making an investment with that money into the potential growth of your company. And if you can't say how this action or this work or this employee, this hire, this campaign is going to drive your business forward, then um, you should probably really consider if that is how you're going to spend your money. And I think that when you've been bootstrapping and now you have a big fundraise, it's really easy to sort of think, I, I need all these things because I'm supposed to, right? Or in my case, it was, I want to take all of these pieces of what I as a solo you know, leader so all of the business that is in engineering and I want to multiply each of these functions by a person because a person should take each one of these functions. And the reality is we're all of those functions having a corresponding impact on the business. And so I think it's it's really common and it's really easy to yeah, overspend when you have money for the first time as a founder. So this is my favorite lottery story. So so this family in Kentucky, uh, maybe it's not Kentucky, we'll say Kentucky, won a lot of, they won a lot of money, right? And they bought like Ferraris, like Porches, like all, they, they went all out, like all kind of crazy stuff, right? However, they live on a dirt road and don't pave the road. So all those rocks just jacked up the cars. <laughs> and the car was like pretty much useless after like a couple months, right? Like, yeah, that's that's a perfect story right there. People that you don't think it through. No. Right? And then I know recently there's a startup in Austin, I can't think of the name of it, but they raised $50 million, they just went under. Out of, out of $50 million, they only spent 1.5 on development. They spent the rest on people, like first they were blockchain, then they were crypto, then they were FT, then it was something else. But you knew it, all the money was gone. So yeah, sometimes it's not a good idea to raise too much money, right? No, it's not. And if we think about overfundings, right? Clubhouse is a good example. How much money has been gone into what is now nearly obsolete tech, right? Or just, there's another company um, in a space tangential to mine. And I was um, in diligence with a fund for our seed investment. And, um, and then I know of another female founder who has a 
company closer to this other company than mine. And we got passed on because, you know, we hadn't quite identified our growth flywheel and she got passed on because she was too early. And this app pre-launch still in stealth um, raised $14 million from this fund for a pre-launch app. I don't know what you need $14 million for as a pre-launch app. And I'm sure there was a plan, right? Um, But how much, if we just shifted where some of the money goes, right? And and how much of that could have gone to this other company that was early, to some other underrepresented founders, right? Unless you're doing real deep tech, hardware, med tech, I just don't, I don't think that any consumer platform app needs that kind of initial startup budgets where you're putting all your eggs in that, you know, that white guy's basket. Yeah, I had an interview with a guy from Nashville last week. He's telling me a guy in Nashville raised $8 million just as an idea, like, and that's $8 million for some app, right? And they give $8 million. And they're like, everyone's like trying to figure what's going on here, right? Yeah, and it's, I don't know, I don't know what's going to happen um, in the next two years. It's going to be really interesting because it's, it is, um, it's changing really fast. Um, and I don't know whether funding is going to, you know, come back up the end of this year, next year. I don't, you know, we don't know what the global economic yeah, I just think it's crazy. Like, no, of course, I'm exaggerating. We see like this two days ago, all this money is real. Everyone has dry powder, you know, we'll give them money. And then like the next day, oh my goodness, it's gloom and doom. There's no money left. Like what? Like how does that happen? Right. This doesn't make any sense to me. That was, it, it felt overnight. And I know, I know founders personally and sort of, you know, in sitting anecdotally um, who are, you know, getting their signed term sheets unfunded. And that's brutal. It's excruciating. And to think that that is right, those, those are like the, you know, the people getting their first job offers rescinded. Like, there's a lot when you think that you, when you have a term sheet yeah. from a fund and that goes away, right? Everything. I think one of the things that's so difficult about being a founder is like there's not just balls in the air but like they all have to align at the right time it's like a whole planetary thing right it feels like everything has to be in exactly the right place exactly the right time and if one of those things comes out of the way that it's supposed to be like it will can all can all drop yeah so back at the clubhouse, it's like the clubhouse was a hot thing. It was on it. And now I'll go on my phone. I'll see clubhouse. Man, I need to delete this, you know, like, because I haven't been there for so long. I, mean, I need to leave. I just keep it on for some reason. I don't know, right? I, I took it off. I took it yeah. off maybe a year ago because I just found that I, it lost, you know, it's it just, it's saturated so quickly. And it could have been, I yeah, guess, it's a good potential. place for this conversation. I think they were really stupid to not sell to Twitter. I think then, you know, now I see, I get notifications of Twitter spaces on my phone and I'm not necessarily listening to those either. I think that there was a, there was a real place for that group community yeah. audio. And that place was when we were all home and lonely. Yeah. And like, I've even listened to it sometimes when I'm driving, but like the thing about if somebody doesn't like what I'm saying, right, they're going to like turn this off or they'll fast yeah. forward 30 seconds or um, but the thing about clubhouses, you were just sort of like stuck. You're like, man, this person doesn't know what they're talking about. Can we get like I'm here for a topic? That is one of the things, and I feel this way about panels. And I, I I've hosted panels at Seattle Startup Week. I've sat on panels. 
Um, staying on topic, something I even okay, I'm, I'm I'm working on that muscle always. But right, there's people who come and sit on panels and then just have conversations that have nothing to do with the goal of the panel. And so I think it's really important. Um, you know, Clubhouse didn't do a good job of moderating that in any way. And people came for a topic. And then what I've heard is that it just sort of devolved into a bunch of yeah, sales I'm, pitches. And yeah, I think they missed an algorithm. Kind of, some kind of conference got on, like all the startups, tech business. Oh, yeah, all the invites, like that stuff, right? And then later on, I was getting invites, like, you no, know, I don't know, meditation, yoga, like stuff I, I would never be interested in, right? And then you go to the top, click on it. There's like 100,000 people in there, you know, trying to talk to each other, people dominate the conversation. It's obviously salesy, salesy, salesy. It just, it's lost its way. It yeah. has so much potential. Well, they invested $100 million in it. Why? Why did that company need $100 million? And then they like, never hired anybody. I think it was like, like, you know, there's like 10, 15 people, like hire people, hire some devs, improve the, the, I don't know. There was no reason. So the, you know, one of the lead investors on that deal is somebody who I respect very much um, named Andrew Chen. He's a partner at Andreessen Horowitz. And he wrote a book recently called The Cold Start Problem. Now, I believe that the cold start problem is one of the best books to come out on network effects. I think that every founder should read it. I think it's an incredible um, story about, it's the counter to if you build it, they will come, right? It really tells you about how to get people coming and coming back. Um, and so he's, you know, he's somebody that I respect very much. I think he's incredibly smart. I think that Clubhouse had these numbers of network effects and viral loops and all of the things that make for a super attractive business. So it's like, I want to hate on that investment. I'm sure they had their reasons. I still want to hate on that investment. So earlier you talked about being the only person in the room. What's your advice to anyone who, when they're the only person in the room? Oh, um, I mean, I guess I, you have to be willing to, to, to speak up because if we don't, right, we just perpetuate this idea that, it, I mean, nobody wants to be responsible for, for taking on the shoulders, right? This responsibility of yeah, like, of well, whole, I have to, whole, everything. Yep, yeah. yep, yep, of representing a, a group. Um, but there's a reason that these things keep perpetuating, right? Why we still have, um, and I, I don't know the numbers here, right? But the number of public company CEOs that are women is, right, less than 5%. Um, we don't put women or other um, underrepresented groups at the table and we don't bring them along with us. So maybe that would be a good one is not just speaking up, but like trying to make sure that there's spaces at the table for other people that could grow. So you're not the only one at the table. So what, what are you doing personally? I know you're doing a lot. What are you doing personally to help mentor female founders and bring them on board, so to speak? Well, it's it's exactly that. It's it's um, so I mentor through the Founders Institute. So I'm regularly um, I think I've done three years in a row now um, where I generally talk on product management or on fundraising. Yeah, that's a great fundraising talk you gave a couple weeks ago. Oh, Thanks thank for that. you. Yeah, that's right. You were there yeah. for the And that was the Founders Institute yeah. one, right? Yep. Um, and so I've been present at certainly some other events like that. I've spoken for the Female Founders Alliance, like later cohorts at UW, um, and then try and make myself available to um, female founders with questions. And so I do take a lot of calls and, and review decks and um, give feedback. And 
I think it's just being willing to pay it forward because I have had a lot of people in my um, journey so far who have opened up and created that space for me. And so I think it's important that we all try and figure out how we can pay forward and keep some ball rolling um, in all these ways that'll better, you know, better society all the way down to those fifth graders who think that they don't know enough about math to be good at science. So, Laura, here's a scenario. Tell me you think this is a good or bad thing, right? Both of us are male founder. Like, I'll use myself as an example. I've, I, I'm starting a company. I'm trying to fundraise. And I, and I see all this diversity stuff, right? So I think in my mind, man, my chance will increase if I bring on a female founder. But in my mind, I'm like, I'm, I'm kind of like a male chauvinist. I don't believe females can do it. But man, I got to suck it up and give this random, this, this female I know 10% of the company. The one thing is, I think it's bad because like, you're not doing it for the right reasons, but then it's good because you're giving a female co-founder a role. So what's your take on that? Yeah, but I also just explained to you that it's a disadvantage, yeah. right? And so you think, right, in that example, and I think there are a lot of people who, again, think that we have some sort of advantage mm -hmm. and we like the money plug is just open because the female's right. on your you know, team, whatever. Yeah. And what's going to happen, like, sure, there are there's attention being paid to the fact that there are funds that focus on, on underrepresented <laughs> founders. Mm -hmm. But those funds are such a small percentage of the money that's out there, right? The big funds, the billion dollars under management, they don't have a, we're focused on underrepresented yeah. founders clause, right? It's the overlooked and the people who've raised these $10 million funds. They're not, you know, they're a drop in the bucket compared to where the growth rounds no, are happening. Right. Where the, right. Yeah. Um, and then I think the problem in doing something like that disingenuinely is that um, you're not actually creating that seat at the table, right? Yeah. You're putting someone on paper, but you never give them no power, nothing like that. They can make no decisions. No, and I can tell you that if 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 a male founder were to bring on a female co-founder just to like have it on the slide deck, mm -hmm. well that investors, when you go and give that pitch, right? Again, if it's not genuine, mm -hmm. it's gonna be really obvious really quick. Yeah. So change the subject a little bit. There's something called um, Pregnancy After Law Support Blog. Was that your blog or blog you was on? Or I'm on the board. On the board, okay. Yeah, so it's a nonprofit, but I'm on, I'm on the board and then help them bring to market the first um, app of its kind. So I um, joined the board. Um, you know, as we mentioned, I lost a, a child late in pregnancy, um, my first child. And I didn't know anything about pregnancy loss. I certainly didn't know um, about what it would be like not only to um, lose a pregnancy, but then to be pregnant again. And it's incredibly difficult. It's very, very, very stressful. There's a lot of PTSD that um, goes along with that whole experience. And so I got a lot of support from this group, the Pregnancy After Loss Support Group. And it's the it's a national nonprofit global nonprofit that is a community for um, parents who have are going through the experience of pregnancy after loss. And um, so I joined their board um, to help them bring to market an app specifically for, um, for families, um, often mothers, um, because there's a lot of apps out there for um, people, for pregnant people that tell you, you know, yo, you're six weeks along and your baby is the size of a poppy seed and you track this timeline and you have all these, you know, you can take photos and things like that. But there was nothing sensitive to the fact that pregnancy after loss is a very different experience. And so um, we built an app 
and it just came out last year and um, we've had over 5,000 downloads and um, and it has great reviews and, and the most important thing is the number of people who say how important it was during their journey to have that particular tool in their pocket. <clears throat> Now on the blog, you share some purpose about your own story, right? Talk about why why you decided to like, be so public, what you went through, like share the personal stories. Like you thought it was like big, do some good. Was it more for you or is it more like you want to you share the story <laughs> and say like, you know, help other people out? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's both. Um, I find it therapeutic, um, sharing my story in ways and talking about it. You know, um, pregnancy loss is still a pretty taboo subject. And so it's not something that's talked about. Um, and so if we don't, as I said, I didn't, I was very naive to the fact that um, one and, 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 and you were yeah. like your early 20s this time, mid 20s. Um, I was uh, 31 when okay, we lost still our young, first though. pregnancy. Yep. Um, and so even though it had happened to my grandmother, even though, you know, I didn't know that. Um, and man, the stories that came out of the woodwork after our loss. Everybody in my high school chemistry teacher, my, you know, old co-workers, like everybody that came out to talk about this experience that they had as well. But if we think it's taboo now, it was certainly taboo 20 oh, years yeah, ago and 40 no years doubt, ago. Yeah. I mean, that wasn't, uh, it wasn't talked about. It wasn't talked about at all. And so, uh, you know, I don't think that people should be scared during pregnancy. I don't think, I'm not saying that we should tell every family that is pregnant, um, you know, just so you know, there's no sure thing, right? You could get all the way to your eighth month and this baby could still die for no reason. Like that's just not something that we that we as a culture want to, and I don't think that we should, but I wasn't aware. And so I think that talking about those stories is not meant to, as I said, scare people, um, but it's a way, it's a very lonely, it's, it's not unlike the founder journey, right? It's a very lonely place. And so if you don't know that this has happened to other people and other people that you know, when it happens to you, it's incredibly lonely. And then there all the support comes along, right? But then, um, and go, then going through the pregnancy after loss journey is lonely. And so it's important, I think, that we find community in each one of these challenges. And that is um, one of the reasons that I have shared openly about our loss and 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 engaged in things like pregnancy after loss support. So hope I asked this question the right way, but did anyone come out and say, you know, like, was like negative, like, why are you doing this? This is bad or anything like that? Was that, was that pretty positive stuff you got back? Um, our, you know, our community was incredibly supportive. I have been cautious about the ways and where I have shared some of the details of our story. Mm -hmm. Um, we shared, for example, we shared photos of our daughter privately mm -hmm. afterwards, not like right on to social media channels. And, you know, it's, it's very, it's a sensitive subject and, and, you know, I, yeah. So I'm just curious. So you have, you have two kids now, right? Mm hmm So. The, the oldest kid now, is that considered your oldest kid or the, or the one you lost is considered the oldest one? The one that we lost was our oldest one. And okay. That was our only okay. daughter and her name was Layla. Okay. And now we have um, a boy who is seven and a boy who is four. Okay, nice. Um, so you've raised a C round. Have you, you raised an A round too, right? 
No, we've raised. What's funny is that we've raised pre-seed, pre-seed plus plus plus. Oh my so god, there's so many like acronyms. We have like. just been stacking, um, stacking convertible notes, which um, it's, it's a not, risk to it, right? It's not recommended. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, it's just you have to hit these milestones, mm-hmm. and we um, have had incredible support from our investors here. So we raised a pre-seed and then um, in October of 2019, and then we had such great growth at the beginning of the pandemic that we opened another note and raised another million there. And then um, we have another one open right now and a lot of repeat investors um, coming back because our impact is growing. Um, finding a lot of investors now who, are, um, who have healthcare backgrounds that are seeing the relationships that we're building with hospitals um but yeah we actually never formally raised a seed round um, okay. so we're somewhere in between those seed and series that a milestones place. yeah so talk about this so i know a lot of founders like they'll raise some money and they'll stop pitching right but you have to pitch like i think you did a pitch last month someone called the fly world conference talk about the points like you know even though you got money and you're doing all these great things i'm still getting out there pitching and you know all those kind of things yeah. so we've done i mean i think there's a difference between um, a pitch event like Flywheel, which was an amazing event. I highly recommend that founders apply to it from the North Central Washington Tech Alliance. And they are just an incredible group with a really thriving tech community in North Central Washington, which I have not spent enough time in the Wenatchee Leavenworth area. Beautiful. Best Mexican food I've had in Washington State ever. So good. Of course, I'm not saying a lot. <laughs> so good. No, it's not. Not for Western Washington. It turns out I'm just going to go to Wenatchee from now on when I need Mexican food. Um, but, um, you know, if you're going to fundraise right, it's a process. And it is an all-consuming process. You prep for it, right? You train for it. You should be getting feedback. Your deck has to be ready. Your list has to be long. Um, and so that I try and do in more discrete chunks. You sort of can't, you can't casually raise. You're all in, right? Yeah. And so we, um, while we do have a, an open fundraise right now, there was sort of a push to fund the first half of it. And now it's, um, we're not putting in, we're headed for cash flow positive. And so we're not, um, I'm not putting my head back down into a fundraise. And so I think that things like Flywheel are, you know, it's great to get on stage and revise your pitch and have an opportunity to um, be back in front of people and practice. And um, But I think that if you are actively fundraising, you need to be actively fundraising because otherwise it will just slowly suck the life out of you as opposed to doing it all at once when, I mean, it is, I mean, it's like, it's like an athletic event, right? I have to remind myself to hydrate. I have to, you know, there's a different schedule for my kids. Like I am ordering more takeout, but that has to be a really condensed, hard period of time. And then you have to step away from it a little bit. So you're saying is like your fundraise, don't put your toe in the pool, go up to the highest high diving board and just jump on in. Yeah, but but train first. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Be a good swimmer. <laughs> <laughs> um do you think founders spend too much like time pitching? Like I don't talk about like pitching for fundraising, like like don't like pitch events, you know, versus building the product. Ooh, um, I think that pitch events have their place. I've loved them. I've done a lot of them. I think that founders need to not conflate um, sort of audience choice with investability because it's really easy to go and do all these pitch events and get great feedback 
from the audience and win and um but an audience is a lot more likely i think to over index on impact which is fantastic right we want to see companies do well in, that that will do good in the world um investors are much more you know looking behind the scenes at the stuff that you're not going to get in a three-minute pitch. So also, you're only going to get the best of the best information in the three-minute pitch competition or the, you know, five minutes or whatever it is. Um, investors are taking hours and hours of diligence and much more information to make investment decisions. And so I think that where, I think it's a really great way to practice your pitch. It's a great way to meet customers. It's a great way to meet potential employees. I think that there is um, absolutely a, a value early on in going to those pitch competitions, getting some validation, right? Because if you are, if if you're smoke and mirrors, like someone in the audience will call you out. I, you know, they do ask good questions. If you get up there and pitch, and everybody's like, "We don't understand what you did," well, that's important information. Um, so I think it's a good way to like not market validate, but even just get practice at standing up there and have to make a pitch, right? And understand what makes a good pitch because what you don't want to do is have never pitched before yeah. and then get on with an investor and, you know, you haven't gotten any feedback. And yeah, people so don't I realize think you, you can practice all yourself by, by yourself, but it's a totally different game when you're in front of people or the camera's on you. It's like totally different. Yeah. It's not even close. So with someone's fundraising, how long should they fundraise for? Like, so they fundraise with, supposed to fundraise for too much and get nothing. So you go back to the drawing board. I've heard like you fundraise too long, get a bad reputation, yep. all that kind of stuff. Yeah, you. which is one of the reasons that you want to do all of your prep because it's true. You have to, I hate this so much about this, right? But it's, it's true that like FOMO plays into it, momentum plays into it. Um, and so there is, um, Leslie from the, you know, from the Female Founders Alliance has been an advisor to us. And when I'm fundraising, right, it's like a coach. How many emails did you send this week? Oh, you need to send 30, you need to send 50, you need to send 100, you need to keep a log, you need to like go, 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 go. Because you can't casually do it because you can't stretch it out. And so, and the other thing you have to do is you have to keep all of your irons in the fire as much as you can. So it's not like, oh, well, hey, I've got three interested investors, and so now I'm going to back off the rest of the fundraise because you don't know how those three are going to turn out. And then what happens is if you get really excited about those three and then none of them invest, well, now your pipeline has dried up. And so um, keeping that pipeline super full, having everybody, you know, it's a waste of time to send emails and find connections to investors who don't invest at your stage, who don't invest at your space, right? You should have a, you have to do your research. You have to have a very a finely researched list in terms of here's who I'm reaching out to, why, and go find that info. Like, yeah, you might not have the connections, but like find them on Twitter, follow them on Twitter, yeah. engage with them. Like all of those things, build those relationships. Yeah, VCs are so big on Twitter. I, got, I have to get more active on Twitter. I do, they're so active on Twitter. So I was not I was not a Twitter user until post given kind. Like I had it, I had a Twitter, you know, for years that I would use to like tweet at the airline about bad <laughs> service or whatever. Then you realize they actually don't care if you have ten followers and you're tweeting. They they see into you. Um, uh, but then I started using it for, and I think all of everything I have on Twitter is is sort of VC and and funding thought leadership, which maybe is why everything feels so doom and gloom right now. So talk about follow up. Like you, you reach out to investors. How often should someone follow up? Like five times, six times, like seven times? Or do, or do you should keep on going until someone says, stop emailing me? Oh, I don't know. I don't do that. Um, 
I think I I think I was only bumping an email maybe three times mm-hmm. max. Now I did see um, a write up recently, but I think it was in regards it was in regards to sales emails. And there's thought leaders. So this was an email I think that came from Hustle Fund, which is an early stage a pre seed fund solely on pre-seed. Um, and they had an email come out recently about um, sales emails that I forwarded on to our marketing manager because I thought it was great. And it really, and this is one of the reasons that I'm not in sales, because it was showing the average response rate based on the email number. And it was like the fourth or seventh email got one of the highest response rates. Now, I don't know how many of those were, stop emailing me. <laughs> but that just blows my mind because I am the type of person where I'm just sort of like, okay, you know, you're not interested. Like, okay, I can't, those, those, the sales emails that you get, like I got one this morning, I hate them so much. That's like, well, I'm feeling like we're in a one-sided relationship here. And I'm like, you spammed me. Yes, it is, it is a fully one-sided relationship. I'm not interested in engaging with you. Um, you know, I suggest that people put, um, Use some sort of like I use superhuman email because it automatically has the read receipts on it. So like when you are doing investor outreach, absolutely have um, you be using an email tracker so that you know if your email is getting opened, how many times it's getting opened. You should be sending your deck with something like DocSend so that you know who is reading it. Because if somebody hasn't opened my email, um, I'm probably more likely actually to bump it up and try and get it open. But if somebody, if I emailed somebody three times, they read it every time and they looked at the deck and they didn't respond, like, I'm going to leave them alone. They clearly, it's not a good fit. What's the lesson you learned from fundraising that you, that you wish you could redo? Oh. Besides calling yourself. So much. Um, I mean, I think you need to get a lot of, you need to be, well, everything I just said about running the process, right? But then... It's really hard when you've been working really, really hard on something for a long time and you get feedback, it can be hard to iterate, right? And because you have just worked something to what you think is perfection and you've gotten feedback from all these different people and you fine tuned and then you take it out and you get feedback and it can be hard. It can be hard to know which feedback to take and not and not take um, too deeply, right? So it's that balance of taking in taking in all of that feedback. But it's it can be really hard to be willing to make to listen to that and um, take it and make the little tweaks that you need to make. And so I think that one of the things that I maybe would have done differently is um, really taking each piece of feedback and using it to try and improve versus just reaching out to more people like okay well what is it that isn't where is the problem right oh is it in our market size is it in our go-to-market strategy like what is it that's missing the mark with some of these investors and using that to sort of springboard into improvements yeah um so you're talking about some can you talk more about your entrepreneur journey um with giving kind or just in general just in general yeah. well so i was so inspired you know i mentioned a little bit at the beginning of this my dad who was a huge inspiration to me um and when he you know i mentioned that he was a tugboat captain for much of my young life um running boats from here in seattle for crowley if you ever see a red stack tug those are crowley boats and he went up to the north slope of alaska and he was gone for four months at a time when my brother and i were little in 
as I had said, he and I still have his old Casio handheld computer, and he would program it and come home like, oh, I made a new game for you guys. And then at some point, he decided that he needed to get off the tugboats and spend more time with his family. And um, he and my parents were always into real estate. And he said, I have an idea. I am going to start a company where people can look on, and it wasn't the internet at that point because they were dialing in, right? So I don't even remember what we called it. I was too young. They were, he wanted to create a place where people could go from their computers to look at houses online. And they already, my mom was a real estate appraiser, so she knew the ins and outs of the MLS. And he built realestateonline.com in 1994. He was had a write-up in the Seattle Times. And real estate agents across the state told him, this is insane. You People do not want to look for a house on their computer. They want to come and they want to sit in a realtor's office and they want to flip through a book of all of the listings. And... Um, and you're crazy. I asked my mom recently, we were living um, way out in the, um, on the Key Peninsula outside of Tacoma. And but he had an office in Federal Way. And so I asked her just recently, I said, why did, why was the office in Federal Way? Why did you drive all that way? And she said, well, because that's the point where you could have modems, because people were dialing into the service. You could have modems with both 253 and 206 area codes in Federal Way. Um, that's the meeting place. So, um, you know, he ended up, shutting that down because he got you know some customers and i don't know what year zillow started but you know it could have been that many years after um all of this in 94. but he was always entrepreneurial and i guess that i i was too right i was always babysitting for extra money and i was the kid who went out on my 16th birthday to get a job like yes i can make money of my own now um but then it didn't um as i said i you know i had a career and it took a while before i was willing to make that that jump into um, doing it myself. But I'm, you know, I'm still always thinking about that stuff. My son, um, I have a big garden and uh, my son said, can I have a lemonade stand? Um, I wanna earn, you know, I wanna buy myself a Nintendo Switch. Cause he asked for a Switch for Christmas and Santa brought him an old Wii because that's how I roll. Um, and I said, well, why don't you sell the produce? You can help me in the garden and then we'll create a produce stand. And now he has a produce stand on Monday nights in our neighborhood. And um, and so I, you know, right now all of our energy and, and is going into giving kind, but we're always thinking of what else it would be, right? What's another business? I don't know why we don't have drive up convenience stores. That might be the next thing for me. Like why can't I pull like through a coffee stand and get a gallon of milk? That's a, yeah, all right. Why not? Yeah, that's a good point. Uh-huh. The thing with the the one item, and I thought of this because I had my son in the car, the little one who couldn't really stay like for me to go into a grocery store. And I literally needed a gallon of milk and I had to go to 7-Eleven. And uh, the thing that where there's the one item that you would be willing to go all the way to the back of the grocery store for because you need it, right? And it's eggs, bread, milk, sandwich meat, like whatever. There's There's only a handful of items that somebody is willing to run into the store to buy that one thing. Those things should be in the drive-up coffee stands. But what's going to happen is there's going to be a bunch of vacant drive-up coffee stands soon because you see that they're changing the laws. Not to see that. They're going to require, well, at least it's there's a bill for it, which is horrible. They are requiring the drive-up coffee stands to be fully plumbed and have toilets in them. Those coffee stands are 
That's, they're a shed. That's smaller than this office. It's a wood shed. There's no way, and it's going to put all, I mean, it could, that's the thousands. We love our drive-up coffee stands here in Washington. It is going to put thousands of them under business in, so, um, if it goes right. through. They want a toilet so people use a bathroom, take dumps, where they make my coffee. <laughs> is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. It's really stupid. And so I hope that it doesn't pass because it's, you know, there's a lot. Those are those are the smallest of the small businesses. Like, those are people who saved up to get their, put their $20,000 shed in the parking lot. And um, and they're going to shut them down. Unbelievable. But I'm not surprised, no. unfortunately. But maybe they should stop selling coffee and start selling milk and bread. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you do for fun? Um, well, I garden. Um, that's a lot of my fun. We camp. So we bought one of those pop-up um, trailers three mm-hmm. years ago, early in the pandemic. Um, and the thing that I love about, you know, if you've ever seen so the pop-up tent trailer is like, you know, it, it travels flat and then it goes up and then has these two canvas sides mm-hmm. that come out the side. And when I tell people that we bought a pop-up camper, like anybody who had one as a child, it's such a... Like, oh, I had one of those. Those are the best. Oh, my best memories of my childhood are in our are in our tent camper. And for some reason, all the tent campers are like were made in the 80s. Like, I think maybe ours was like a 92 or something. Um, and we bought it from a family that had four boys and camped in it for 15 years and took a great care of it. So we camp all all summer long um, because it's it's just it's our little home away and and we so go so we're going this weekend it's going to be super hot we'll be so out like on weekend Canal. excursion so to speak yeah yeah so we do the yep Friday to Sunday and then um, and then I'm out in the garden on on Sunday nights so what's the farthest out y'all been camping like Eastern Washington another state or you click close by yeah no we take it down to Oregon so we have friends we've gone down outside of Eugene a couple times. Um, we um, have a spot that we like. We just went back to a few weeks ago in the pouring down rain. Um, Wallapa Bay out on the Long Beach Peninsula, which I only recently learned that. Um, and I don't know if it's, it's not Long Beach. I'm blinking on which little town it is right there. Is the oyster capital of the world. Okay. The so Long Beach, Ocean Shores. Yeah. So sort of south of there, south okay. of Westport. And. Wallapa Bay is really interesting because um, it's so shallow. And so when the tide goes out, the bay is like emptied. And so you can walk, you can walk out a mile into the middle of the bay. You just have to watch because the tide's going to come back really quickly. But it's full of shellfish. And um, so that's that's super fun. We like shellfish gathering. Do we make that like bootstrapper entrepreneur <laughs> thing like wait i can just walk out into the dirt and i can collect dinner like that is some major roi um so we, we really really like doing that so what's your like your favorite fruit or vegetable as far as gardening Ooh, um so this year we have i grow a lot of onions i've learned that that's something that it just does very well um a lot of greens a lot of lettuce a lot of kale that's so it that has all been very happy right now with the cooler start to summer that we've had so i think everybody's greens are flourishing um and i love growing tomatoes because that's you know if you've ever gone to a farmer's market like peak summertime and they want seven dollars a pound for these heirloom tomatoes and i understand why because anybody who has only ever eaten a grocery store tomato and has never had a fresh garden tomato Big like difference. It's, night difference. And day. Yeah. it's night and day it's like strawberries I tell everybody right now should go and get strawberries from the farmer's market or from a pick or something because it's it's not the same we don't realize that the food that we get from the grocery stores 
is not the same anymore, right? It's all been, it's not only all modified in GMO, but it's, it was all picked three weeks ago so that it will still be fresh. Like when you, if you go to a you pick place um, and get strawberries, which I, again, highly recommend that people do right now is the time. And you take those strawberries home, you need to do something with them like in 48 hours or they are mush and mold. And think about how different that is from the carton of strawberries that you buy at the grocery store, which can sit for a week. Yeah. Why? I know I used to go deep sea fishing every year out of Westport. And, mm-hmm. and like this. Like catch a halibut? Yeah. Night, that salmon. That's a, you see a real color mm-hmm. salmon. The store salmon. It's like, yeah, that's not, not even close. Mm-hmm. And how long have you been gardening? So it's been, it's been growing over the years. It's really neat. It's actually my mom has property. That was my grandparents. So my grandparents bought this property north of Gig Harbor 40 years ago. And my grandfather gardened there. It was his garden. And so I have these memories as a little kid of, like, picking peas in his garden. And then they've both since passed away. And then we were out of the area for a long time. And as we came back, the garden has slowly been growing. And I don't know if it's this, like, I'm about to turn 40 if it's just this age where all of a sudden I didn't I didn't think gardening was going to be a passion or a hobby of mine, um, but I have jumped full force into it. And um, so only just a few years and then doing more and more like planning. So last year was the first year that I sort of used a web tool to plot out and figure out, calculate how many <laughs> seeds. And this year I redid all the irrigation. So I learned all about drip irrigation oh, wow. You're going all in. and yeah. I am going all in, but it's, it's that, um, you know, it's I, everything that we started was from seed. And so to see this, to step back in July and look at this plot of land that is full and to know that everything started as a little packet of seeds mm. in my living room, it's so cool. And I think as a founder, you miss, right? You grind it out all the time. And I am always, I'm always grinding. And it takes really stepping back and looking at that. Like we do a year, you know, a year in review. And I just did some summary numbers for the flywheel pitch. And I was like, wow, we've had 3 million people come to Give in Kind. They have sent $4 million in support to other people through our platform. They've done 150,000 acts of service. So that's, I'm taking you dinner, I'm walking your dog, right? For their friends and their family and their community. But when you're just in it every day and you're thinking about like, can I get one more user and one more number and one more transaction and, and all of that, it's hard to step back and really look at the impact and the, the fruits of your labor. And I think there's something about gardening it's just like that journey, right? Where it's like, I started with a seed, I started with a thing, but with a garden, I've got tomatoes in two months, right? Nothing happens for me in a <laughs> startup in two months. So going back to Thailand, have you ever found a restaurant, a Thai restaurant in the area that's just as good or at least kind of close to the, the Thai food back there? Ooh, so I um, in Tacoma, yes. And I'm sh- certain that they are in Seattle as well. I just um, haven't spent any time eating in Seattle in the last two years. Um, they certainly are in Tacoma. Um, you know, it's interesting. I think that that, I think that even the Thai food that is super close to, to what I experienced in Thailand here, they're still working with ingredients that are here. Right. So it's the same thing like the farmer's market. Mm -hmm. Like it's just, you know, the pigs eat different food in Thailand. And so, and the cooking, you know, the apparatus are different. It's different. It tastes different because you were sitting 
on a turned over bucket on a street corner yeah, yeah. eating the noodles yeah, and so yeah, it tastes exactly, different exactly we traveled all over southeast asia during that time and so the ability to like eat a banh mi in vietnam was amazing um i love vietnamese food i love all asian food um and there's just you know there's there's nothing like it and, and people are like seven minutes thailand that spice level is just a different level right i, I went to eat one time i said man i don't know spice don't get a one that one was like American tin. Yeah. Like, oh my goodness. Like, I can't deal with this. Yep. Craziness. Good. So how do you take care of yourself? How do you take care of your wellness? Make sure you don't get burnt out and, you know, just here for the long run, so to speak. Um, man, it's something that I, um, again, something I'm always trying to improve on. I go through phases. I, I go back to the gardening, right? For me, like time spent weeding and raking and um, doing that physical outdoor labor is really good for me. It's That is probably the key to keeping me balanced. Um, we have a Peloton. I um, ironically broke my foot on it two months. We're probably going on eight weeks now just kicking it. By, we had moved it, you know, so that muscle memory of where you expect something not to be and managed to fracture it, which meant that I was off it for a period of time. And now I need to just get back onto it now that I can put my feet in those shoes again. Um, I love that my family, you know, one of the things about kids getting older that's really nice is that they can be involved in those in the activities. So we can take a bike ride, we can take a walk, we can take a hike. Um, and those, um, it's fun to have your kids get older and be able to partake in all of those activities with you. So. So how do you prioritize what you're doing like day to day, week to week? Like you just you do wing it, you have a calendar. How do you make sure like how do you make sure you prioritize it? Like, you know, do number the focus on things one or two versus going to number ninety-seven? Um, I keep a dashboard. Um we, we use Notion and across the company and absolutely love it. And so we all have a custom Notion dashboard. So that's where I can sort of see tickets that are incoming for me. But I have to make sure that I'm um having people make tickets for i'm learning a lot more about um you know what is probably some neurodiversity and um and coping mechanisms that i have used and skills that i should learn even more for keeping good order around prioritization which i guess is a long way of saying i'm not always great at it sometimes i'm like an inbox dictated um prioritizer right which is not like just making sure that the things that are at the top of my inbox are addressed is is not a good way right checking to remember what tabs you have open <laughs> as your to-do list is not a good way to do it so i am learning more of those skills right and it's for me it was about actually moving out of paper i was a paper notebook keeper and to-do lister for a very long time and then i learned that what happens is that the pages just get turned and then that information is sort of gone so trying to make sure that I have um, a good way that I can also in my priority list, a notion I can sort of drag and drop and reorder things. Um, and then just getting them done. Just, you know, and even if it was a lower priority, but I got it done. Well, sometimes we need a little bit of that, a positive affirmation of just checking stuff off of our list. Yeah, I know, I know recently like, every startup founder has said how great Notion is, like everyone loves Notion. I need to check it out and learn it. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing. And it's, I think that it can be overwhelming. We have, um, our my co-founder is um, a total Notion guru. And so that has really helped. I think that it's one of those tools that can be sort of overwhelming or feel not as powerful as it is if you don't know 
what you're doing with it. And so it really helps to get somebody in to say like, what are your needs? I feel that way about, I don't know if you've ever been in Tableau, like the super powerful data tool, but it, it, you, not anyone can just open up Tableau and like make use of it. And I sort of feel that way about Notion. Like it has very powerful capabilities, but if you don't know what you're doing with it, then it can just feel like another wiki kind of documentation tool. So with a given kind um, platform itself, how does it work? Like do people say, do like would I go in there and say, hey, this bad thing happened to me, I need donations, or how does that go? Similar. Um, it, so it's it's primarily, so yes, that's the way GoFundMe works, for example, right? Um, given kind is more used for people's um, friends, family, community, generally people who know them. Um, and it's it's for the situations where uh, often it's something it's something bad. It's all challenging moments, but that's all. It's new babies, cancer support, surgery, lost my home in a house fire, and it's it's a it's a way to respond to those questions of people saying like, well, let me know how I can help. Well, you know what's not helpful when you're going through a really challenging time? A bunch of people saying, let me know if you need anything, because then what happens is that when you you're like, well, I actually do need these five things. But am I am I actually supposed to go back to all those people who said, let me know how to help and tell them like, well, I need my prescription picked up from the pharmacy. I need to pick up my kid from school. Like, which do you want to do? And what do you want to do? So people create a page on Given Kind. And, and actually, normally, it's not the person going through the thing. It's somebody that's close to them, right? Um, and they set up a, a page on Given Kind, and it has a care calendar on it. And so people might start something that um, a lot of people think of as a, called a meal train. So, hey, Sarah's husband just passed away. We're going to make sure that the family's fed for the next month. Um, so we create a bunch of slots where people can sign up to bring or send dinner. Um, they use it for rides to the doctor, childcare, walking the dog, um, grocery deliveries, all sorts of things that people need. Um, when they're, you know, just need some support in their life because of this big challenge. Um, people can create a wish list or add to a wish list. So we see a lot of digital gift cards coming through there. They can share updates um, with their community. So it's a journaling mechanism. So we have people who are journaling every day or every couple days on their, um, you know, on their cancer journey recovery, on their sick kid who was born early and is in the NICU, or they're just sharing new baby photos. Do y'all do anything that like vet people to make sure what they're saying is actually true? Or is that between the people that do it? Yeah, not, so we've had very little incident of fraud. Okay. Um, and only, actually only once have we had someone, um, we have, what we have is more just people trying to buy um, gift cards with stolen credit cards and we have a whole bunch of mechanisms in place to prevent that. Gift cards don't come through for 24 hours. There's, you know, a bunch of security checks on the credit cards. We have a bunch of, we know that if all of a sudden you have a brand new Given Kind page and then five Sephora gift cards were sent to it, it's probably not um, valid. So we don't have, because the support is most often coming from someone's own community, then, um, you know, we're not as concerned about fraud because we're not like, promoting them on the front page of the homepage. Hey, everybody go and help this story. So only once did we have somebody come to us and say, hey, somebody created a given kind page um, that is pretending to be our family that is going through this crisis. Um, so it's not it's not too big of an issue, not in the same way that it is with GoFundMe. And how long can someone have a page? Is that 
a certain amount of time, release it around money, or it can nope. be forever. Forever. We have pages, so you know we have a lot of data around um, the average amount of time that a page lives, and so that's about thirty days. It really depends on the situation. Um, pages for cancer support go on two months or three months or four months or a year. And we have people who've been using Given Kind pages to coordinate support for the um, older people in their life, grandparents or whoever. And we have pages that have been going on for two years. Has there been a time where like someone wanted to do a page and you were like, not took it off, but like missed the kind of borderline, like, you know, you have cancer stuff, you no know, loss of kids. And someone might have said, hey, I'm going to do a page because my because I sprained my ankle, you know, like, is there like a limit? Like, what's the limit, so to speak? No, so we have, you know, we have really broad situations available. You have to choose, you set up why you're setting your page. You say, you know, you select from some categories when you set it up. And some of them are ongoing support. But I think, you know, one of our beliefs is that there's no situation that is more or less deserving of support. Mm -hmm. And I think that's because we don't know we don't know people's circumstances, right? Um, if you if you broke your phone and you wanted to create a page, which we have seen, to help you replace your phone, like a lot of people might judge you, but if you needed that phone to get a job or communicate with your job and keep your job, right? Who are we to say that you shouldn't try and get some support to raise your, um, to replace your phone? Now, I think one of the other things that we really do in this society is that we really stack rank um, deservedness, right? Like, well, I think this is something that, you know, probably women do more so also, which is, well, I'm, you know, sure, I'm I'm laid up, I'm sick, and I'm, you know, have cancer, and my mom just died, but at least all these other things didn't happen to me, right? I don't need help as much as the person who, um, you know, is more sick or is, you know, I don't need help for spraining my ankle because my neighbor has cancer. Like, again, that doesn't, um, that shouldn't disqualify us from getting help and support just because other people have it worse. Um, and so, point. yeah, we really believe that, that everybody should have access to getting support from their community and that Given Kind can make it easier. So here's a question for you. We are, we are a list we do. Like, suppose you have a list, I'm making this up, you have a list of like 100 things to do, right? And every day you do things one to 10. But it's been four months passed on and things 20 to 99 are still on your list. Do you say, hey, if I haven't done this three months, is it not important to me to take it on list? Or are you trying to delegate to someone? How do you handle that? Oh, that's a good question. And we um, tackle that a lot when we're looking at our product backlog, right? And it's a it's a discussion that our my co-founder and I have all the time because he has a belief that things should just get stale and be marked as such, and they should disappear from the backlog. If it wasn't important enough for us to make it a priority, is it really important? And yeah, I guess I probably am a believer that it it was there for a reason. And so long as the reason is still valid, which is, I guess, one of the reasons that I think it's not a bad idea to some days, just go take care of items 97 to 99. So how do you, how do y'all do your product roadmap for your company? Well, um, so we have a, a pipeline of suggested improvements from the team, and this is one of these great Notion integrations that we have. Um, so anybody can enter into a Slack channel. We have Slack channels for product improvements and um, bug reports, and you can just enter in a you know, high-level description, and that's going to automatically create a ticket in Notion. And so then you can go to Notion and enter more information. And so then we have all of these tables in Notion 
So we have incoming requests and improvements, and it's uh, my job to go through and sort of parse those out and prioritize them. And then we take the top chunk of priorities, and those actually go into the uh, product roadmap. And then from there, then we're working with engineering to get level of effort, and we're I'm mapping them against our OKRs so that we can really start to look at Okay, this is the OKR that we're focused on, and here are the pieces that we think are going to make the biggest impact. They have the highest priority score, and they have a level of effort that we can, you know, that we think we should take off at this time. And so it's this balance, I think, of weighing effort and impact, um, which, you know, is how I think we should all be prioritizing and not to say that we should all be prioritizing the things that are the lowest impact, because we don't necessarily prioritize the things that are the lowest impact. I'm sorry, the lowest effort. But it is important to know um, how much effort something is going to be, right? And I don't think we can make good decisions about um, how to prioritize features, for example, unless we know um, how much effort it's going to be. So this one thing I don't think we have to talk about enough as entrepreneurs. Like, you know, being a startup founder is hard. It's not easy, all that kind of stuff. But like, life still goes on, right? Like, you have two kids. You got to be a mother, a wife. You got to wash clothes, maybe. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, the car might break down. All this stuff happens, right? How do you, like, you know, deal with all that, you know, like life stuff, so to speak? It's so hard, and I loved listening um, to Michelle talk about this because uh, I think she has the same attitude that I do. Um, uh, you know, you have to just choose the things that you can let go. Because when you are building a company and there is no nine to five, right? There's no shut off. Um, you have to create the mental space for that. And so there have been things that I, um, you have to just know that you're not gonna, you know, your house probably isn't gonna be perfect. You know, you're certainly not there with your kids all day, right? That you have to have a supportive partner, or supportive family or supportive friends who can take care of um, helping lift you up. Um, I think it's a little bit of, you know, I know that, that term horse trading, like you're just gonna have to make trade-offs and you have to accept going into this that there are trade-offs. But I think one of the great advantages to One of the reasons that I think entrepreneurs start down this path is for some level of flexibility. And while that's like a joke, haha, you know, we're we're all fully entrenched in our um, company, it takes a lot of mind space for sure. But most of the time, the flexibility is there. If I want to go to my kid's school for a performance at one o'clock, I can be there. You know, most of the time, I can start dinner at four o'clock most nights because I'm going to be back online at nine when the kids go to bed. And so um, I think it's just about, um, you know, sort of forcing yourself into compartmentalizing at times and saying like, okay, I have to, this can wait, this will be here when I get back. And I'm going to, you know, make the time right now, this time for mothering or wifing or cleaning or whatever it might be. And how do you do a schedule? Like, do you work 12-hour days, same as a week? Do you have a day of the week or do you do no work at all? Or do you, like, take a little mini breaks during the day? No, we tune out. I, I'm pretty good about disconnecting on the weekends right now, especially. In the summer, I'm very good at disconnecting because I'm out camping almost every weekend. Um, the problem is that I can't... Uh, we don't have... We have live chat customer support five days a week, not seven. And I can't get myself not to look at like I still get notifications on my phone. I don't answer them all, only if it seems urgent. 
But like, I can't, I couldn't go out of cell service for seven days right now in our company's um, place that we are. I just, I couldn't do it because if there's still like these nuances to, um, you know, is the number of people on the site right? Is the, right, all these sort of like trends that are in my head. Um, so I disconnect pretty well on the weekends. Um, but no, otherwise our schedule is, you know, I do the morning routine with the kids and um, and then they're off at school or camp all day. And then generally um, doing family time in the evenings. But then we have a lot of meetings. I mean, because our the team is 14 hours away, sometimes the work happens very early in the morning because there's been a release overnight or we're sending out some marketing messaging early in the morning. Um, and then we're almost always back online at night. And that's just because the the dev team is firing back up and we have regular meetings with them. And um, so it's, it's split. And I think in some ways that's, um, you know, probably more productive. Maybe everyone would be more productive if in ways they split their time, right? Do as the Spaniards do and take a big break in the middle of the day. Exactly. So Laura, you already talked about your company, but can you go in more detail, like how it got started again, what you focus on now, and what's your big picture vision for it moving forward? Yeah. So as I mentioned, Given Kind started because we lost a child. And, and more than that, we had a community of people who wanted so badly to support us. Um, friends and family and coworkers and everybody, and they were spread all around the country. And I was working at the time for Dex Media, which is one of the Yellow Pages companies. And I was um, building for them a, or, or, you know, helping run a reputation management tool that helped small businesses listen to their customers. And so when I um, went out on leave with our loss, and we had all these loved ones who wanted to help us, but they didn't know I mean, this was literally down to the problem of them not knowing what restaurants or grocery stores or delivery services were in our area because they were trying to help from the East Coast or from up here. And given that my business was connecting consumers and businesses in their local areas, I thought, man, there had to be a better way for all of these people who love us to know what they should do when somebody is, um, you know, how they could help, what sorts of things they can do in this, you know, sort of terrible moment, but then get connected to the businesses around that person um, to give that support. And so they were using a platform um, to take care of dinners for us called Meal Train, and I had never experienced it. I didn't know anything about it, and I sort of went, mm, this is kind of some old and clunky tech Um I think that there's a much more modern way to do this. And because this was 2013 and we were in Venice Beach, we had um, Instacart, we had Uber Eats, but like those services weren't elsewhere in the country yet. And so nobody knew about them. And so I thought, man, there has to be a more modern way where we can connect. We can connect all of these services and um, really help people know how to help and like soften the way that we communicate the things that we need. And so then I chatted with a group of moms who um, all had kids um, who had gone through pediatric cancer treatment. And it was a similar conversation of like, when you had people who wanted to help but didn't know how, like, what did you do? And the answer was, well, we used one platform over here and that was meal train. And then we were posting updates on CaringBridge and we were raising money on GoFundMe. And like at the end of the day, I just had this sick kid in this, in this room 
who wanted, you know, these special markers in the middle of the night. And I and I had all these people who said, let me know how to help. But there wasn't like actually a good mechanism for connecting all of these people who wanted to help um, and letting them know how to do it. So um, that's uh, when we decided to build Given Kind. And what's the focus on right now? Just this customer growth or being more people to platform? Yeah, it's customer growth. So um, it's always customer growth. And it's been interesting to watch sort of post-COVID the ways that people help. So when we started the platform, um, you know, some people want to help in person. Some people want to um, send help from afar. Um, and we were seeing that the ways that people were sending help was um, digital gift cards was a lot of that. And then the pandemic hit and all of a sudden nobody could help in person and everybody wanted to send gift cards for for DoorDash and Uber Eats and Instacart. And so we really ramped up that part of the business, um, which is the primary way that we drive our revenue today. And now it's interesting watching as everybody's sort of coming out again, right? Watching how that behavior has changed and the ways that people are now taking dinner to their neighbor again. Um, and so we're going to be watching pretty closely what the trends are and the ways that people are giving support, um, but then also always customer growth. So a lot of partnerships and hospital partnerships, and we just brought on a new marketing manager who has a big, um, her background is at the juncture of um, uh, healthcare and faith communities, and those are two big users for us. And so um, we're really working on growing those sorts of partnerships with um, with local faith organizations and national healthcare partners, because that'll be a big channel of growth for us. And so the future, you're trying to like, you know, like, you know, is the future vision, like, you know, have a certain amount of money raised on the platform, you know, certain percentage of people who need help, you know, like. We just want it to be the default response. When somebody we know is going through something to be able to say like, hey, I'll start a given kind page for you. The way that I think in some communities GoFundMe became sort of like a default, right? If you heard about, whenever you hear about some big tragic accident in the news, right? There's always a GoFundMe attached. Well, there should be a given kind attached and there are to some of them, but like we wanted to be that, that natural response that when, um, that whether again, your neighbor had a baby or fell and broke their hip or um, lost a loved one or uh, that it should be this like, I'll start your given kind page. Cause one of the hardest things for me to hear and I hear all the time is, I wish I knew about this when I needed it the most. So we wanna make sure that people don't ever say, man, I really needed that. I really could have used a given kind page. I didn't know it existed. And are you only in the United States or across the world? No, we are only in the US. Is the plan to expand later on or I'm guessing? We will, yeah, there's all sorts of um, tax implications for selling goods um, and transferring money, which is sort of something that we, has been more complicated than we expected or hoped for. So you know this, you, do you track this? Do you track like, you know, like, how for this, like, what kind of economic demographic donates? Is like people make a hundred thousand donate, people like 20,000 less donate? Any so it's on that? interesting. So um, we do have in Tableau, thanks to an amazing um, program, we worked with a team of, um, UW Tacoma students who were all getting their masters in applied analytics and they did a year long program with us and just culminated. It was very cool. And it was all really digging into um, our data from a bunch of different ways, helping us figure out like what makes people get the most support 
Is it the way they fill out their page? Is it um, where they live? What kinds of support they get? And so they did some um, geographic overlays of the different types of support that happen on Given Kind, and then against things like um, uh, income of the zip code. And so we can see trends of zip codes with higher incomes do a lot more transactions, especially because a lot of people's support is coming from actually within their local community. And then not surprisingly, where some of our, um, the most of our users are is in the, it's in the Bible Belt. It's the swath from Texas to Georgia. And um, we have a lot of users in there because I think that's a very, um, the concept of a meal train, the concept of like, I'll bring a casserole, you know, because somebody died is, is very cultural in the South and the Southeast. And, you know, I think we're a little more like you're on your own here in the Northwest. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. Um, so Laura, any, anything else to ask you that I haven't asked you yet or anything else you want to talk about? No, we covered it all. We covered the travels and the startup and the fundraising environment and good reminders for me to um, prioritize the things that uh, bring me joy. Nice, nice. Um, can you share your social media links with us so people can reach out to you for you and your company? Yeah, so we're Givenkind, G-I-V-E-I-N-K-I-N-D.com. And then I am um, on Twitter at Laura Givenkind. Um, but then we're given kind is on all the platforms just as our business name. And to listen, we'll have links to our social media and show notes. You can find the show notes at www.cavitatesoblah.com. And be sure to share this episode with your friends and network and subscribe to the podcast. Um, Laura, it's not like I have so much more to ask you. I'm just drawing a, I'm drawing a blank right now for some <laughs> reason. Um, so that's going to ask you. Ask me what you do for fun. How, okay, you know, how do you keep up your, your, your skills? Like, how do you professionally develop yourself, so to speak, right? How do you make sure you're the best CEO possible? Like, do you have coaches, mentors you go to? I know you said, um, I think Leslie's like one of your mentors. Yeah, so we have advisors for the company, for sure, and I meet with them um, bi-weekly, um, trying to always bring a question, right? And it, this is a habit I've had ever since I, you know, was a, I was an individual contributor having one-on-ones with my bosses, and I had a mentor um, that I worked under three different times before starting Given Kind. I worked under four different times before starting Given Kind. Um, and he is uh, was just an, uh, an incredible mentor to me and, and challenged me and hard on me. And I think it was one of my first one-on-ones with him where I was actually directly reporting to him. And I came in and, and he, you know, gave me a talking to about the fact that that was my meeting. I needed to understand the structure of a one-on-one. I was coming and um, needing to present my challenges, what I was working on, the things I was going to improve on, like that, that. And so that's when I learned, right, to, to, or I try and be better about not just sort of giving updates in a, in a meeting, but using that opportunity to, um, to present a challenge or to talk through something I'm working on. And I think as founders, Especially when your advisors, you're talking to your investors, your advisors are investors as they are in um, the majority of our case, is that you don't want to look, you don't want to look stupid, right? You don't want to, it's like, you know, they tell you to always include an ask in your investor updates. And it's hard to say, here's something that I need because you kind of want to pretend like you have it all together. But the fact is, is they know that you don't have it all together. And so those are learning opportunities. Um, I read quite a bit on Medium. 
um, follow the rabbit holes on Twitter. I mean, I actually think that as a founder, Twitter is a, a decent place, right? It because is. you get the thought leadership that then you can go and read more on the blogs of the different funds or the different founders who have um, have walked in your shoes before. Yes. Um, yeah, we're going to have to do another talk because i got so many questions <laughs> to ask you. This has been a fun talk. But I know you, oh, yeah, networking. So I know you're going to a networking event tonight. Talk about the balance of founders you have between networking and working a product. I know so many people like network, network, network. Like what's it called? One one of What do you want to call it? Yeah, I don't, yeah, yeah. You can't spend all your time networking for sure. And actually, I probably spend less than I should because, um, as it turns out, I'm an introvert, which I didn't know. I did not know that introverts um, that this is sort of classic. Because I said, how could, I can't be an introvert? Like I loved getting on stage and pitching, and then I, I, I found I'm, out I'm the same way. Yeah. That's an introvert thing. Yeah. But put me into a room. Like, I hate nothing more than walking into an event, you know, and everybody's standing in those groups of three or four at the tall tables, and you just have to, like, oh, I'm supposed to walk up and yeah. interject myself on someone's... I refuse to do it. It's excruciating. I refuse to do it. Mm-hmm. And, like, when I'm looking before people talk to someone good, I'm like, you're, like, you're so rude. Like, we're here talking, right? <laughs> it's uh, really hard. It is hard. Um, and I know people who are fantastic networkers, and I am not one of them. Um, like, I, I really don't care how your coffee is, how your day was going, you know, yeah. like, is it, you want to talk about some deeper person, I'm down for it. But I say, oh, the words they say, oh, who cares? But you never know. You know, you never know who you're going to meet. And so That's I think too. I think it is important to be involved in those events. And I um, there's one in Tacoma. I hope that you will come. What are they calling it now? Because it was Startup 253, Small City Startup. And okay. the guy's name is Ston, and he's an incredible supporter of South Sound Tech Scene. And they have, um, I will make sure that you are invited yeah. to the next one because I, um, he finally, I kept having a conflict. And then Ston said, Will you speak? He's probably watching because he's such a good supporter of us. Um, Will you come speak at the event? And I'm like, Well, this is how you're going to get me to come. And then I, I went and just remembered how important it was to connect with my community. Um, and that being our, you know, our founders and not, there's something different too about, you know, people in Tacoma. And so getting to be with a group of tech people and it was hosted by the Maritime Blue Incubator, um, you know, it's special in, in Tacoma. But it's, I think the point is that you never know, you never know who you're going to meet at those events. And it's not just, I think that some founders think, oh, I'm going to go network and I'm going to meet the next investor for my company. But like, in reality, customers are just important. Advocates yeah. are just as you might important. Meet your, meet your next employee, next uh, advocate. 100%. Yeah, so so one track I do for like int- like int- for being an introvert, like post event starts at seven o'clock. If I get a seven ten, I like I shouldn't even go right because I'm done. What I do, I'll get like fifteen minutes early, and people walk in the door. I do, I do I introduce myself. They walk through the door. That's that's my mm-hmm. trick. Yeah, so what happened to start too far through? I know like they were doing it for a while. It's like they disappeared off the stage and like. Yeah, so that was, I think it's sort of been, it has transitioned. You know, it has been sort of quietly there, and there's a Slack community. Mm-hmm. If you're not in that, get you added to that. And, um, you know, it was being championed by by Lee Reeves, who's a great advocate of the startup community here in Seattle. And he has worked for a couple different programs here where his role has been to help support founders and startups. Um, and I know he was sort of got it kicked off. And then, you know, the pandemic. And um, and so it has really been taken up now by, um, by this guy, Ston, who um, I had met at many other Seattle events and I'm sorry at Tacoma events and um, as I said just such a champion so I think there's a there's a rebuilding of that community yeah, think, coming back I think Tacoma's definitely under, underrated because I don't think people realize all the colors down there all the talent down mm-hmm. there it's, it's a lot down there right there is so Laura uh, what kind of a talk can you give us any advice or anything you want to talk about 
No, I mean, I think that for me, the the biggest advice, and, and this is coming, I think this is good timing. I think this is advice that is actually just being echoed right now, but I would have sort of said it anyways, right? Is that your business has to be sustainable. You have to create a business that will make money, that has customers, right? That Like, I think that we sort of lost track in this frothy market of the fundamentals of business. And it was really easy to think because we've seen so many unprofitable unicorn companies, right? That just lose hundreds of millions of dollars. And it's really easy to think like growth at all costs. And that is not going to work anymore. And it probably shouldn't have been working all this time. And so I think the biggest thing for me is that anybody on this journey right now needs to don't be thinking about how how you can raise and when you can raise and optimizing for a raise and investors optimize for a good solid business you only want to have to count on yourself laura thank you for your time today i really appreciate it thank you so much jason and to our listeners thank you for your time as well remember to be great every day thank you for listening to this episode of the jason kavnis experience be sure to connect with us across social media at kavnis hr thank you and remember to be great every day You've got to pump it up, don't you know? Pump it up. You've got to pump it up, don't you know? Pump it up.